welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. The Bridge Builder helps you live your faith in public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me today in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hope that you're having a very blessed Saturday. You can catch us each Saturday here on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m., If you miss an episode of The Bridge Builder or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit our website at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, that's mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our lives and our faith in the public square and in politics. We also answer your questions through our mailbag segment. And remember, you can always email those questions to us at show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org or contact us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And it wouldn't be an episode of The Bridge Builder if we didn't give you a practical tip uh, and ways in which you can build bridges and bring faith into public life. We have a very special guest today joining us on the line now from Richmond, Ohio, is Dr. Stephen Crayson. He writes a column, Neither Left Nor Right But Catholic, which appears monthly in a number of publications, including Crisis and the Wanderer. He is professor of political science and legal studies and associate director of the Veritas Center for Ethics and Public Life at Franciscan University of Steubenville. He's also co-founder and president of the Society of Catholic Social Scientists and an attorney. Among his books are Abortion, Abortion, Politics, Morality, and the Constitution, as well as Liberalism, Conservatism, and Catholicism. He's written another book, The Transformation of the American Democratic Republic. And finally, he's even tried his hand at fiction with a Catholic political novel called American Cincinnatus. Good morning, Dr. Grayson. Great to have you with us today. Well, great to be with you. Thanks a lot. Tell us a little bit more about your column, Neither Left Nor Right But Catholic. How does one even begin uh, to overcome the ideological polarization present in our political life and think with the mind of the Church? Well, I, I try to um, approach the column and approach my analysis of the public questions I, I address in light of a background of Catholic social teaching and thinking of the principles of Catholic social teaching. And, um, you know, not every column deals with Catholic social teaching questions, but that's kind of the perspective I'm bringing to it and so forth, and uh, you know, try to make an evaluation in light of, you know, uh, the, the, the truths of the natural law that the Church teaches, of course. One of your recent columns, you touched on uh, the, the phenomenon of gender identity ideology and gender dysphoria and all the confusion around gender in our society. And you've called for a non-feminist, non-ideological reappraisal of the role in, of women in society uh, as one of the causes of that uh, gender confusion. Why do you think feminism or modern feminism is partly to blame for the general confusion around gender? And should we even be using that term gender? Well, I mean, I, because it's been uh, sort of appropriated, you know, by uh, people who are promoting oh, a homosexualist agenda and so forth, and trans- transgenderism is part of that, I, I simply use the term the two sexes and so forth. Now I try to do that. Um, you know, uh, but uh, it seems to me the feminist movement, you know, uh, caused a lot of confusion about uh, uh, men and women. They sort of treated the two as interchangeable, basically, and, uh, you know, uh, particularly the, the modern wave of feminism, uh, the current wave of feminism that developed, I guess, in the uh, late 19th 
1960s and really splashed onto the scene in the early 1970s. And I think their, their uh, sense that uh, sex didn't make a difference and so forth and uh, in, in virtually any way, I think it kind of spawned other things as time went on. So now you have this phenomenon where people seem to think that, uh, you know, male or female sex are interchangeable and, uh, you know, people can change their sexes and this is a social construct or something like that. This has become a, a fanatical, extreme, and foolish. And that's, that's putting it pretty mildly, you know. Would it, it would it be the case that uh, there's it's operating under a vision of equality, equality as sameness, as in terms of equality as uh, complementary uh, sexes? Well, I, I think the feminist movement has gone in that direction from its at least this wave of it since the beginning. I said in the late late sixties, you know that uh, yeah they haven't seen any. Uh, they've, they've confused the notion of equality in terms of equal, equal dignity, if they have any sense of what dignity involves at all, or, you know, equal kind of access to public roles and so forth, uh, you know, sort of a equal kind of role, uh, access to a different kind of job situations and so forth. They've confused that with a kind of a sameness, an interchangeability, it seems to me. And, uh, yeah, they, they've had no sense about uh, how they, indeed, that the two sexes are, uh, uh, yeah, there's an equality at that level, obviously, dignity, equal dignity and so forth, equal personhood. But by the same time, they've uh, confused that to think that there's no distinction between male and female. Obviously, once you assert that kind of notion, just opens the door and leads the way to other things as time goes on. So we're, we're in this transgenderism right now and so forth. Why do you think there's an unwillingness to acknowledge the innate sex differences in our culture and in our politics that exist between men and women? You know, that's, that's really hard to say, I think. Um, you know, I, I think um, well, one thing often leads to another, you know, and if you get a convoluted kind of perspective uh, philosophically at the beginning, and I think uh, our, the roots of our current problems are, are a flawed philosophical understanding, flawed philosophical premises. You might say, you know, that as, as uh, the great thinker Richard Weaver said at the end of uh, writing after World War II, before even a lot of things were to go on to happen, he said, you know, we can trace our current problems back to the philosophical confusion of the late Middle Ages, you know, and and uh, I, you know, I think it was, um, oh, uh, maybe it was Thomas Aquinas that said, you know, or uh, certainly some of his, some uh, Thomas over time have said, you know, f- small errors uh, in the philosophical realm and in the speculative realm lead to large errors in the practical realm. And so I think you can say, well, you can trace it all back to that. But of course, one thing led to another as time went on, and of course, the rise of modern ideology is a very big factor here. You know, um, Marxism, for example, you know, it, there, there's a kind of a Marxist perspective in some vague sense that stands a lot of this kind of stuff, maybe most of it, and so forth. And, uh, you know, it's a complete uh, upheaval of previous thought and so forth. And, and man is made the center of all things. Whereas that's the thrust of modernity, it seems to me. And so, uh, you know, man becomes God, if you will. And so man can change things at will as time goes on. And so what would have seemed only, um, you know, 25 or 30 years ago to be, you know, a, a position that would have been uh, outlandish to, to embrace, one would have thought one might be kind of crazy to embrace it, now it's become mainstream. I mean, you look at uh, some of the things that are being talked about, for example, during this, uh, the early stages of the pol- this political campaign, and uh, it seems like, uh, and I, I'm going to have to fault the, the, the Democratic candidates here, you know, it's, uh, might as well call the spade the spade, I guess, here, you know, essentially, it seems to me that they're embracing positions here, uh, you know, that uh, are just, uh, they're almost uh, thoughtless basically, you know, and uh, they're following certain ideological positions put forth by different organizations and groups, and basically a leftist ideological perspective, and they kind of abstract themselves from reality. It's almost like reality doesn't make a difference, and that's become very much of a, uh, an ingrained kind of attitude in many, many, uh, in many uh, areas of American life and so forth. Yeah, the, the episode during the debates comes to mind where uh, one candidate said that we needed publicly funded abortions for men. 
And if that yeah, wasn't crazy it, enough, the audience yeah. clapped, right? Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. But this is this is becoming the main. This become the mainstream leftist position, I think. You know, and it's uh, it's almost mindless. And I that, that's what kind of strikes me, I think, about. And of course, the Republicans are not pure in any sense either. But I mean, it, it, it kind of strikes me as I look at the at the the Democrats right now in this campaign. The and the left, uh, it seems to me that they've surrendered their good judgment. They've surrendered their thinking, their clear thinking to ideology. So ideology has this tight hold, and uh, it's become increasingly, I think, uh, dangerous. And uh, you know, I, what really strikes me about the left right now is it's increasing kind of totalitarian bent. And uh, I think they're ready to sort of impose these things on people uh, and uh, you know, force people to embrace them and so forth. It, it seems that cu- culture, business, government all seem to be combating what some might describe as the natural consequence of women and men pursuing yeah. jobs and careers consistent uh, with their innate dignity and uh, sex differences, their own nature. Are these policies, attitudes, and trends a positive development and that they may also be eroding needless stereotypes about respective roles of men and women, or are there legitimate bases for sex distinctions in the workplace? Well, I, I think this has gone to such an extreme now that uh, pretty much what you have happening here is that even you know, in, in American corporations, big American corporations and so forth, they've embraced curiously a kind of leftist perspective about so many of these things. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you can see, you, you read about this all the time. Uh, I think we're, we're well past talking about, you know, uh, uh, correcting uh, more distant past kind of problems in terms of, you know, not, uh, not, uh, allowing, uh, not allowing women to play a role they should play and so forth. The church has said they should play, you know, and so on. They should be you know, an access to, uh, you know, jobs that, as John Paul II put it, that they can by their nature do and so forth, you know. We're long past that. It seems to me now we've gone in a direction just of kind of, uh, as I said, interchangeability, just emasculation of sex differences and, and kind of rejection of any notion that there might be, you know, any kind of a, a legitimate or illegitimate areas for women. For example, in my article, I talk about, you know, is it appropriate for women to be in roles like coal miners, for example? You know, I mean, women who, uh, you know, uh, where, where physical differences obviously make a great, a great deal of difference in these jobs and so forth. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think with one of my uh, students, I think, uh, who commented to me that we were talking about uh, roles for women and uh, about firefighters, well, you know, wouldn't it be a problem if a woman didn't have the, uh, you know, the, the physical capability of saving somebody in a fire and so forth, wouldn't that create a problem? And I see, yeah, I think it would create a problem, you know. So, I mean, there, there are some kind of roles. We, we kind of emasculated legitimate differences, you know, as we've done all of this. And uh, I think it's probably, though, because of this force of this feminism became, it's an ideology, you know, and uh, ideologies are known uh, for surrendering uh, a, 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 a clear understanding about reality for the sake of, you know, the ideological prescriptions they're trying, trying to further. Well, it's interesting now that you have uh, uh, female impersonators, one might say, eroding the gains made by feminism because of some of the abstractions of modern feminist ideology. Yeah. Yes, that, that, that's been commented about. There, there are some people in the feminist ranks who are actually little uh, commenting uh, uh, critically about that. And, uh, you know, of course, another uh, one of the issues that's come up recently has, has been about, uh, you know, tra- so-called transgenders uh, in, in athletics, you know, the people who are men uh, claiming they're women and, uh, you know, uh, competing in uh, women's athletics. And uh, there's some discussion that this could really you know, wreck women's athletics and so forth, you know, and uh, this has been one of the big, big stresses, women in sports more, and uh, this could actually undo so much of that, you know, and uh, it really reflects in, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, men have a different physical uh, capability than women, and uh, here they are, they're calling themselves women for the sake of, you know, being able to uh, get the, uh, the advantage to, to the sake of defeating actual women, you know, in, in women's sports and so forth. 
Shifting gears a little bit, Dr. Crayson, Catholic social teaching uh, from the popes used to promote a living wage for a male breadwinner, and it was seen by some, especially writers such as Chesterton and Belloc, that feminism had aligned itself with uh, big business in pushing women out into the workplace. But the reality is now is that uh, we do have women in the workplace in greater numbers in all kinds of different professions. Um, how, how does the church respond to that? How do we respond to that in public policy? Do we try to go back to a push for a living wage for a male breadwinner, strengthening unions, or do we accommodate the realities of modern economic life and advocate for things to ameliorate some of the challenges of that, such as paid family leave policies? Well, you know, I don't think we should ever uh, give up on promoting sound principles. You know, uh, regardless of where the culture has gone, we have to try to reclaim the culture. We have to go on the offensive to try to reclaim the culture. And, uh, you know, as recently as John Paul II, he spoke about the family wage, you know, which would be enough, he said, for, um, you know, uh, one person to be the breadwinner and so forth, so the other person would not have to go outside of the home. And, of course, you know, what you're going to have typically, as I tell my, my students, you know, when we talk about Catholic social teaching, uh, you know, uh, you typically have a situation where it's going to be the man is going to be out there, the male breadwinner, the husband father. And so uh, John Paul talked also quite a bit about, you know, uh, uh, you know, women's maternal role, and uh, this should not be denigrated. The role of women as mothers should not be denigrated because he saw this happening so much and so forth. And, uh, you know, uh, so, uh, yeah, the, the family wage should be, should be pushed for, to be sure. We shouldn't uh, let that go by the boards. And uh, one of the, I, I think, great problems has been that, uh, you know, we really haven't had enough stress on the family wage. And so you've had many employers who don't think they have a moral obligation to do, to do that, to provide for that. And by the way, in terms of this thing about, you know, uh, the, 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 the one breadwinner for the family, um, you know, uh, John Paul also talked about, well, you know, uh, because the women as, women's family role is so important, and he said it was denigrated so much, and of course it has been, you know, he said you should restructure work, you know, uh, so that, you know, women, you think particularly professional women here, you know, women should be able to, uh, you know, go out uh, to uh, leave, leave, the, leave uh, the work world and raise the family, and they should be able to come back into it, you know, without considerable disadvantage, you know, they should be able to step back into it. Once they've raised their families, because the family is so important, you know. And uh, basically, in talking about that, you know, uh, economy doesn't rule man. You know, man is not for the economy. The economy is for man. I think that's what John Paul was conveying that we should restructure work so it can accommodate women's, you know, uh, uh, maternal desires, women's desires to raise a family, and uh, you know, the role they play in raising a family, and so forth. And uh, so, yeah. Now, in terms of other kinds of uh, public policy questions, you know, I again, there might be some role for some of these things. You know, I. I tend to be a little hesitant to say there should be some national, you know, legislative mandate about family leave requirements or something, because then you get into a situation, of course, of uh, you know, not being able to adapt to different kind of situations that are out there. And, of course, you're dealing with the federal bureaucracy then, which tends to be about one of the least responsive uh, kind of uh, entities in terms of uh, assisting people and really helping people. You have this mythology about that I think uh, comes come forth, especially from the left, but it's been bought into many, many political kind of perspectives about somehow you know, turning the government to solve of our problems, and yet government uh, bureaucracies tend to be very, very rigid and very unresponsive, you know. So, but nevertheless, you know, there's a role for something like, I think, a family leave. Maybe companies should be thinking about this more, I suppose, for the sake of promoting the family and so forth. Maybe it's got a role, you know. Uh, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know if it's the one way we should go. I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about that, but I mean, maybe there's, there's possibly a role for it in different contexts and so forth. And really, ultimately, you know, you need to have uh, morally well-shaped uh, uh, people in business and so forth so forth, you know, in the corporations and so forth. And uh, uh, it, it shouldn't simply be a question of government regulating them. There should be, you know, the, the ethical business businessman and so forth is what you should have. We don't seem to hear too much, too much about that kind of thing, you know. 
politics is downstream of culture, so we've got to start at the cultural and uh, commercial level, and then hopefully politics will uh, reflect good policies at those levels. So Yeah, po- politics grows out of culture, yeah, for sure. Dr. Crayson, thank you for joining us today. Dr. Crayson is the Associate Director of the Veritas Center for Ethics and Public Life at Franciscan University in Steubenville, and his column, Neither Left Nor Right But Catholic, can be found at The Wanderer and at Crisis. Dr. Crayson, is there a place where people can go for your books as well? Uh, well, you know, uh, they're pretty much uh, all, uh, all over the place, I guess, uh, online. I don't, I don't really have a, a website. You know, I keep thinking maybe I should set one up. I don't know. But, uh, you know, um, they're, they're in different places. If you just put titles in, uh, my, my bio is at uh, the Franciscan website. One can see the names of the books there. And, uh, you know, you can go and just put the title of the book in on a search, and you can probably find different places that have it. Uh, I know I've had a few different publishers for the book, so, uh, but you, you can, yeah, you can find them somewhere online. We appreciate you joining us for today. God bless you and your work. Thank you. Same to you. We'll be back in a moment. And welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Right now, we're going to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer, Kit Cross. Kit, what have you got for today? Yeah, so throughout the legislative session, we send members of our Catholic Advocacy Network action alerts and different updates, ways that they can contact their legislators quite easily on various bills, different issues, and especially when those are coming up for a vote. And that's led some of our listeners to ask, well, when I send off this message, usually it's an email. Sometimes we'll ask you to call. You're welcome to call. But we've got people wondering, do I actually make a difference? Are my legislators listening to me? Is there something else I could be doing to be more effective? The answer to that question, Kit, is yes. Uh, your emails and your correspondence with legislators does, in fact, make a difference. We have to start with the basic premise. Politics, especially the state and local level, um, is made by the people who show up, whether you show up as an elected official, where you, whether you show up as a constituent or an activist or a lobbyist. Uh, public policy gets made by those who show up, and showing up is very, very important, and you can do that in a lot of different ways. The best way, of course, um, if you're a citizen, is to have a meeting with your legislator and tell him or her what you think about important issues and bring a few friends with you. Um legislators are not born with all the answers. They don't go into office with all the answers. They rely on you, you, their constituent, for guidance and perspective about what issues are important. They know that if five or ten people in their district call them or talk to them about an issue, that 50 to 100 people really care about it. And 50 to 100 people um, can shift or sway an electoral race in such small legislative districts like we have here in Minnesota. Minnesota has the largest Senate and the 10th largest uh, House of Representatives in the country. That means that legislators are more responsive or have to be more responsive to their constituents because they represent fewer of them, and fewer of them can make a big difference in their election or re-election campaign. For example, only you only need about 10,000 votes, give or take, typically, to win a state house race here in Minnesota. And so 100 people who are walking uh, the streets, doing door knocking, giving out literature, upset about an issue, can make a big difference. There, are, Every election cycle, there are two or three races that are decided by 100 or 200 votes or less. And so those voices make a difference. And so legislators are extraordinarily sensitive to 
the concerns and issues of their constituents. That really does make a difference, particularly in those districts that are swing districts or in which it's not very red or very blue. Now, the best way to contact your legislator, of course, um, is an in-person visit. Uh, Even a phone call or a handwritten letter or a note are the best ways. But emails, like the ones that you might receive from the Catholic Advocacy Network, are effective as well. Again, it's a good pulse for the legislator about what issues are of interest to their constituents, what people care about. The more emails, the more calls, text messages, the more tweets on a particular issue, the more a legislator is going to sit up and pay attention. It really does make a difference. I know that legislators tell me uh, when we're at the Capitol that if they, uh, they'll tell me about an issue or let us know they've heard about it if they get four or five emails. So the emails do really make a difference. Now, the emails that are most effective are the ones from constituents. Legislators don't care much about emails from outside their district. So these mass emails that, you know, if you're emailing a legislator in Wanamingo and you live in Wabasha, that's not going to have a big effect. But the emails to your legislators do, in fact, uh, make a difference, and those are really important. Now, a lot of people fall into what I call the complacency trap, which means, oh, my legislator is Republican or my legislator is Democrat, and this issue. Well, he's a Republican, so he should be pro-life. I don't need to email him about this pro-life bill. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, People aren't as, uh, you can't assume anything by party label these days. Furthermore, even if they are supportive of your issue and they and you know that they need to hear from you that this is an important issue that they should either give more importance to that they should be moved from supportive of your position to committed to enacting the law um, they need to be supported especially if an issue is controversial um, if they're getting a lot of pushback from the other side remember politics is made by uh, public policy is made by those who show up so it might be the case that people on the other side of your issue are showing up and letting your legislator hear about it so don't let party labels or the conviction that you don't think you can make a difference play a role and prevent you from simply clicking on your mouse or picking up the phone to call your legislator. Many people don't know that your legislators want to hear from you and want to hear from your perspective. The best way, again, is to visit them in person, whether you're coming down to the Capitol or inviting them to coffee on Saturday, which you can totally do. Um, But also emails do, in fact, work, and we encourage everyone who's listening to join the Catholic Advocacy Network to make their voice heard and more effective in the public arena. It's an easy thing to do. You just mentioned joining the Catholic Advocacy Network. One way you can easily join is to go to mncatholic.org forward slash action center. We've got it right there. You just put in your, your email address and your mailing address, and that will help us connect you with your specific legislator. So that's one practical thing you can do. Before we go today, we have just a couple more minutes, and we like to provide you with some more practical ways that you can start living out faithful citizenship. What do we have this week, Jason, that would help people to bridge the gap between faith and politics, help them live out missionary discipleship? Well, we call this the Bridge Builder Show, and the bridge is built brick by brick. So our final segment of the show is the brick layer, we call it. How do we do this brick by brick? And we try to focus on practical things you can do. This this week is a little bit more uh, at that level of uh, not so much strict public policy, but building relationships, fostering a politics of encounter or a culture of encounter 
Ross Douthat, writing in the New York Times last week or a couple weeks ago, noted that someone somewhere who's on the opposite side of an issue from you, who thinks differently from you, has a story that you need to hear. And that's really crucial wisdom for public or uh, public life as we get siloed, especially um, in our own uh, places and news networks and friend circles and Facebook feeds and everything else, in which oftentimes the thinking uh, reinforces our own. But we often need to focus on building a culture of encounter to get outside of our own narrow perspectives and see something from another's vantage point. And no issue is that more important, I think, today than the immigration question. Definitely. So much of the immigration question and our experience at the Minnesota Catholic Conference uh, is rooted in the fact that we're not talking to each other. Uh, We don't understand the perspectives of the other side, whether that's immigrants not understanding necessarily where um, native citizens are coming from, but also citizens not understanding the plight of immigrants. And the more we build those conversations, uh, the more we foster what Pope Francis calls a culture of encounter, we can live a politics of encounter. And this immigration question is so crucial. We deal with questions like immigrant driver's license, why that's an important issue here in Minnesota, why that's needed in the absence of concrete, uh, comprehensive immigration reform at the federal level. The more we kick the can down the road and prevent comprehensive immigration reform from happening, the more we're going to have these immigration crises. But the Catholic Church is in a privileged position to foster this culture of encounter precisely because we have so many uh, diverse parishes, bilingual parishes especially, in which you have... uh, Uh, Caucasian or Native communities. You also have Latino communities. We have uh, Southeast Asian communities as well. Um, All sorts of diverse communities, African communities, Liberians, et cetera, et cetera. You name it. The Catholic Church is the most diverse church uh, and the most diverse religious community, certainly in the Twin Cities. So how can we as a community model that culture of encounter? How can we get to know each other? How can we exchange stories um, that are going to help build bridges of dialogue instead of walls of resentment? And the Catholic Church really needs to model that. So we challenge our listeners to do that themselves. What are some practical things that you can do uh, to help foster that culture of encounter and share stories? Uh, join or create a parish welcoming committee for newcomers. Um, there are a lot of immigrants, I think, in many of our parishes, but do we get the t- take the time to know them? Are there ways of facilitating uh, between the diverse linguistic masses um, real relationships between those folks. Be, visit with persons, learn their needs, their goals, and their dreams. If you've got concerns about immigration, share those with them to help them understand where you're coming from. Because I think people who have come here or are seeking a better life, um, they're often puzzled by the somewhat hostility they hear from some of their neighbors. Why is that? Why are there concerns? Why would people be concerned about immigration and what that means? Create a public display of a large world map where people can pin their picture or their ancestor's picture to the country from which they came. This is something that we put in our Immigration Sunday guidebook. We have an Immigration Sunday every year on Epiphany in the state of Minnesota, in which we try to find, try to do just what we're talking about today is building a culture of encounter uh, between um, citizens and non-citizens, helping share stories and understanding each other better and modeling a different way for the public at large. That guide includes everything from some of the tips we've been talking about, like inviting a newcomer into your home to share a meal, but also things like fasting, fasting from social media uh, for resolution to these difficult uh, immigration questions. Kit, what else should people have on their minds as they think about talking about and building cultures of encounter in our communities? Well, so actually coming up on September 29th is the official World Day of Migrants and Refugees. So you'll probably see a lot of things around that 
on social media. Um, the Vatican is sort of spearheading this. Uh, it happens every year. This year's message is that it's not just about migrants. Uh, Pope Francis put out his statement for World Day of Migrants and Refugees. Uh, but one point that really stuck out to me in that document is he says, you know, it's not just about migrants. It's about, and he kind of has a lot of different examples, and one was fear. And oftentimes that fear, you know, may be legitimate, but a lot of times it's not. And a lot of times fear deprives us of a desire, as he says, and the ability to actually encounter other people. So kind of overcoming that fear by getting to know people, getting outside your silo, just asking someone how their day is, uh, that can really make a big difference. So three resources that we'll highlight on our show page, but want to mention to you today, 2019 World Day of Migrants and Refugees from Pope Francis. Again, that's incurring on September 29th. Our Immigration Sunday materials that are always available at our website, mncatholic.org. Again, mncatholic.org. That highlights the ways in which you can foster a devotional life around this issue of encounter through prayer and fasting, through the sharing of stories, and you can donate uh, as well to a number of causes that help uh, build bridges and nurture a culture of encounter. Finally, the USCCB has a small group guide, which I'll, we'll also link to, called Creating a Culture of Encounter, a Guide for a Joyful Missionary Disciples. Those are key resources in which you can help build a culture of encounter. Again, to visit our website, mncatholic.org, to find links to those resources, or you can go to the USCCB directly. That's all the time we have for today, but don't forget that you can help others bring the Catholic faith into the public arena. Be a sponsor of The Bridge Builder. It's a great opportunity for businesses and organizations to advertise to a core audience of people who are committed to living their faith in public life. Let listeners know that you support our mission. You can email about sponsorship opportunities to kit at show at mncatholic.org. Again, show at mncatholic.org. That's this place. You can also be a part of our mailbag segment. Again, show at mncatholic.org. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll begin back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, have a blessed weekend. Thank you.